If you would stand for the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Our passage comes from Mark 10, verses 23 through 31. You can find that on page 494 of the Bibles that are on the back of the seats. Northridge also provides these Bibles to anybody that doesn't have one. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please feel free to take one that's in front of you. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and asked him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we as your people ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to do an incredible work in us today, that we would be transformed, that no matter what we treasure, no matter what we treasured as we walked in here, Lord, that our treasure as we leave would be only Christ, that we would look to him for all of our hope, for all of our joy, for all of our satisfaction, for all of our significance, for all of our worth, that Jesus would be the pinnacle of everything that we are, everything we have, everything we think, Lord. And we pray that you would do this. Lord, we pray that we would be somehow enabled to abandon religious ceremony, religious duty for the, for its own sake so that we might embrace wholehearted devotion to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would do this work in us. God, I pray that you would enable us to hear your word, God, with with authority, that, that you would allow it to, to come uh, come forth with authority and that, and that people would receive it as it truly is the word of God. And Lord, I pray that you would enable me to handle rightly the word of God, that that my own fallenness, my own frailty would not corrupt the message that comes forth from your perfect, inerrant, holy word. And so, Lord, I ask all this in the only name worthy of asking, Jesus our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So glad to have you here this morning. I, I did this last week, but if you don't mind me making another kind of a, a repeat announcement, um, we uh, we have on the 20th of, uh, well, still next month, I guess it's only the 30th, uh, we have our uh, potluck uh, Thanksgiving dinner. We do this every year. It's always our, our biggest uh, fellowship event of the year. And this year we're doing it. It's going to be really a lot of fun. We're doing it with three other churches. Um, and the, in fact, the event itself will be at First Baptist in Wolferth, 
And we would love to have you there. In fact, I hope that every single one of you will be there. Um, we're just asking you to bring a side of dessert, something like that, some bread. Um, and then oh, I'm asking about six of you, if you would, to prepare a turkey. Um, you don't have to worry about buying it. The church will provide the turkey. We just need some ovens. Uh, unfortunately, my wife and I do not have six ovens at our house. We're not that kind of preachers. And so, um, but we would love to have your help if you can help us uh, make some turkeys. So if you would, there's a sign-up sheet, just an old uh, old school paper analog sign-up sheet on the uh, on the uh, tables out in the foyer. If you would today, uh, we need to know that the staff over at First Baptist needs to know who's coming. And so if you would let us know um, uh, that you're coming, what you're bringing, and if you are able to uh, throw a turkey in the oven for us, um, we would be ever so grateful. So um, please do that uh, sooner rather than later and let us know. Um, let's get into the word, uh, just what we have been looking at in the book of Mark. We've been in here since February and, and are going to continue to the end. Um, and last week, you might uh, remember in our message that the the man that is commonly known as the rich young ruler, uh, he, we don't know his name, just the description of him, he approached Jesus and he asked him this question, good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And when he boldly insisted at Jesus' suggestion that he had kept all of the commandments since his youth, Jesus raised the entry fee to the kingdom of heaven. He said these words. He said to the young man, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And at this, you'll remember that the man sorrowfully departed, having loved the treasure and the status that came along with his worldly wealth far more than he was interested in heavenly riches. And Mark says that as Jesus relayed what seemed to be way too high a price for eternal life, in this man's opinion, that he's telling him this, and and Mark tells us that he loved the man. I love that detail. Pointed that out last week. And yet, though it says that Jesus said these things to him, loving him, what did Jesus do? He let him walk away. One thing that Jesus didn't do that sadly puts Jesus into a clear distinction from what we see a lot of times in a modern American evangelicalism is Jesus did not run after him and say, wait, 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 50%. Just tell 50%. And you can, okay, 25% and you can earn the kingdom of God. No, Jesus never, ever backed down as he had done before. He, um, he maintained this reality that the cost of the kingdom of heaven was everything that we have. Now, while Jesus didn't, we talked about this last week. He didn't intend that to be a universal message to everyone in the body of Christ. He didn't intend that you go home this afternoon and liquidate all of your belongings for the benefit of the poor in order to somehow earn salvation. His point to this man and to you and to you is this, that you cannot cling to the trinkets of this passing world. You cannot indulge favored sins, and yet hope to enter God's kingdom. See, Christ, the call of Christ is expensive. 
It demands undivided loyalty, undivided devotion. But Jesus wasn't calling the young man, nor was he calling you or I, for that matter, to a life of poverty and misery. This has been a mistake the church has made since the beginning of the church. That, that, you know, you had the monastic movement in the, in the Middle Ages that, that just took vows of poverty. And, and so instead of being responsible and making a living for themselves, they stood on street corners and begged for nickels. But what he was doing, he wasn't, he wasn't telling him that everybody, that a Christian is defined by a life of poverty and misery. What he was saying is that he invites us all to exchange what is transient, what is passing away for what is concrete and eternal. He wants us to exchange fleeting pleasures that are here today and gone tomorrow for a life of unassailable joy. And and the reason we don't get excited about this call is because our minds are too earthly. We don't understand the great treasure that Jesus, with open hand, holds out to us as we cling to all the stuff that cannot last. And in the aftermath of that encounter with the young man, Jesus makes commentary on what had just happened to his disciples. And in doing so, he exposes them to three things that we're going to look at today. And for easy memory and note-taking, I'm going to start them all with the letter H like a good preacher should. And it's this. Jesus exposed them to the hazard of prosperity. He exposed them to the hope of possibility. And then he exposed them to the hundredfold promise. He shows them how to. This, this man came wanting to know how to get something. But Jesus is about to show these men how to gain true wealth, eternal wealth, and how to be first. And his words will run counter to everything you've ever heard about success. It will put to shame every self-help, get-ahead book that now sits at Barnes & Noble. It's going to shame everything we've heard about getting ahead, about being number one among others. And Jesus begins to break down the incident with the young man for his disciples with these words. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus wants them to see, wants the the disciples to see, that somehow this man's possessions, his great wealth, have made his journey into eternal life very arduous. He doesn't say, how hard is it to understand the message of the kingdom? It's too lofty for him to understand. He doesn't say that the requirements of the kingdom are too unattainable for him. He points specifically to the man's wealth as something that has become for him an obstacle. Something that is now barring his entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That which he came to Jesus seeking. And Mark says that when Jesus says this, that the disciples are amazed. They're shocked by what Jesus has just said to them. But notice that Jesus doesn't clarify he doubles down he repeats 
his words with a slight alteration. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what was different from the first statement from the second statement? Notice that he removes the clause about those who have wealth in his second statement. Jesus is saying, pay attention, that coming into the kingdom is difficult for all of us under any circumstances, even for those of us, like most of us, without wealth. It's difficult. And this is not a new theme for Jesus. This isn't the first time we've heard him say things like this, right? We've heard him say things in, in Mark. We, we know he says things like this in, in the other Gospels. Jesus never said anything that supports the easy believism that is prevalent in modern day Christianity. In fact, he says quite the opposite. Salvation requires more of us than just a mental assent to a set of facts. It requires more than just the addition of some religious behaviors or religious opinions to our lives. To be saved means to trust in Christ, the whole Christ, and nothing but the Christ. Every other confidence that we have for the security of our souls must be cast completely aside. Your family name, your financial worth, your appearance, your reputation, your education, your physical strength, all of these things are a worthless currency when it comes to acquiring the bounties of heaven. And this is why Jesus said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, Mark 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. It is not hard work to go to hell. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do. And those who enter by that way are many, because it's so easy. But then verse 14, he says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is telling us that abandoning all for the sake of him, no matter how good of a trade that is, is difficult to do. So knowing that the way of life is both hard to find and hard to walk, why did Jesus say that wealth in particular makes it makes entry into the kingdom so incredibly difficult? Well, the answer can be partially found in Christ's parable of the soils. If you go to our website, you'll find a great message that Pastor David preached on that a few months ago. In, in, this, in this parable of the soils, he talks about how some people were like seed that fell among thorns. And they represented those for whom, quote, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. First... Christ tells them that the cares of the world are hostile to the word and the work and the effectiveness of the word. What does he mean there? He means that when we place all of our focus, all of our attention on temporal concerns, what to eat, what to wear, where are we going to live, that the more money you add to your life, the more you have to mentally manage and protect and cultivate. And this can distract from godly concerns. Second, Christ warns against the deceitfulness of riches. What does he mean there? He means that the more financial security one has, which 
parenthetically, I'll say that is what most of us are pursuing is more financial security. He says the more financial security one has, the less need for God's rescuing hand in your life you are going to feel, almost universally. I've been asked before by different people over the years why I think we don't see the frequency and the magnitude of healing miracles like what occurred in the book of Acts in the in the age of the apostles. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. There are historical and theological reasons for the decrease in those events, I'm sure. But if we set aside just the theological reasons, I wonder if our ability to rely on our own resources, the the money we have access to, the insurance coverage that we have access to, makes us less willing to look to God for intervention. Why even think about crying out to God? Why even think about Him in the first place? If we can simply swipe a little plastic card, if we can, you know, just take care of it by turning stuff over to our insurance company, why would we press through a crowd to touch the hem of His garment if we just have insurance? It no longer becomes necessary. Now, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to quit your job. I'm not telling you to cancel your insurance. That's not the point. Everybody got that? We're not going to get on the news because I told you not to go to the doctor and you died of cancer. That's not what I'm telling you. Our wealth and our insurance are blessings from the hand of God. Amen? Let me say that again because I don't think some of you believe that. Some of you don't even think you have wealth. But let me let you know, if you live in America, you have wealth. Our wealth and our insurance are blessings. Amen? Good cue. Good cue. But I wonder if sometimes they become what we look to for salvation in and of themselves instead of seeing them as gifts from God. How might God show himself strong for us if we looked in faith to him first instead of viewing him as our plan B when all other options have failed us? And this is what Jesus means By the deceitfulness of riches. Wealth will never be anywhere near the kind of savior that Jesus is. And so riches deceive us when we make them a savior and place them on the throne of Christ. Lastly, Jesus speaks of a desire for other things. It is an absolutely 100% universal predictable phenomenon among us. The more we have, the more we want. And the more we want, the more we strive to get. Contentment, which the Bible calls us to, is quickly displaced by greed for new and better stuff. That, that, that truly American desire to keep up with the Joneses. So let me, let's do a little test of ourselves. I don't want anybody to raise your hands, but How content are you with your phone when Apple releases a new phone? How content are you when you notice that your five-year-old car has fewer gadgets than the ones that just came out on the market? How content are you when you see that your Neighbors just moved to a bigger, nicer house in a bigger, nicer neighborhood. How content are you? How do you pursue 
things that the world tells you are so important to have. I think we would all do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. Now, listen to how this passage ends. This is a sad passage. And what I mean, it's not, I don't mean it's sad in that it's depressing or anything like that. It's sad because most of the times when you hear any of these verses I'm about to read you, they are sliced up and given to you in little fortune cookie form that is not the text of the Bible. Listen to these together. Not, uh, Philippians 4 verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, I don't usually do this, but everybody say, whatever situation. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Now, what did you notice about that? Verse 13 didn't really say anything about winning the big game, did it? It didn't really say anything about getting that promotion you've been fighting for, did it? It didn't say about anything about rising above all your mental and emotional struggles, did it? It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I don't need all this stuff because he is who makes me sufficient. If I have a lot of stuff or if I have no stuff, it is Christ who makes me sufficient. Christ wants his followers to be free from the prisons of the soul that he describes in in the parable of the soils. So he uses hyperbole to illustrate for them the hazard of prosperity. He paints a picture, not of improbability, but of impossibility. He says in in, uh, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Just a little, you know, Captain Obvious moment for you. A camel can never, ever, under any circumstances, David Copperfield couldn't make a camel go through the eye of a needle. It can't happen. And so Jesus is sounding an alarm. He's declaring the danger of the universal impulse to pursue passing stuff instead of delighting in heavenly rewards. Remember, the rich ruler was disheartened at Jesus' call to abandon everything and to follow him. Why? Because he had great possessions. And so, for his love of those great possessions, he gambled his very soul. Bad decision. Horrible decision. And yet... The rich young ruler and these words from Christ shine an uncomfortable spotlight on our souls because none of us have ever treasured Christ on our own initiative. Left to our own, we would much prefer all kinds of things over Jesus. Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? And so because of this polluted condition of our soul, we need something 
or should I say someone external, someone outside of ourselves to help us and to make us able to do what is otherwise impossible to do. The disciples were amazed when Jesus began talking like this, but after speaking of camels and needles, Mark says that they were exceedingly astonished. First they were amazed, now they're exceedingly astonished. Why? Well, the answer is mostly found in Old Covenant Judaism, where wealth was often over-associated with God's blessing. In other words, if you're rich, you must be favored by God. And if you're favored by God, you certainly can't be far from salvation. So we believe also, similarly, that every good thing is given to us by God. We're not saying, oh, if you have nice things, then you must be a sinner. No, we believe every good thing is given to us by God. But the Bible does not teach that financial prosperity is a sure sign of God's approval. And that's what the disciples believed. If you're rich, God must be in favor of you. What we do believe is that the good gifts that we have in our lives are just signs of that, of God's goodness. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's kind to everyone that he's created. A few of the twelve that were hearing Jesus said this, had tasted and probably trusted in worldly wealth. Remember, Peter was a successful fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector. He had tons of money at one time. But Jesus was now rocking their religious boat that they had put their their faith in. Their question that they asked uh, uh, was, was genuine. This next question was genuine. Even if it was born of confusion and discouragement, the question was this, Jesus then who can be saved? If I mean, if the rich can't buy their way in, we're all doomed. If money isn't the guaranteed sign of God's favor, the rich can't buy their way in, Jesus, who can be saved at all? These might seem to you and I, 21st century context, like absurd questions because we don't necessarily think that way. In our culture, we more often associate uh, the the rich with injustice and and you know uh, you know just uh, selfishness and things like that. But how often, even if we don't think exactly like that, do we misunderstand the ways of God? See, you might be here today thinking that your morality is your riches that's going to buy your way into heaven. You may think that it's your social activism. That you care more for the poor and disenfranchised. You may be here and you think that just obtaining theological knowledge for the sake of theological knowledge is your ticket to heaven. But let me be very clear to you, not a single one of those things or any other thing can help you. None of them have the power to save you. And just because we don't think like the 12 we're thinking in this story doesn't mean that there aren't plenty in the church right now who do think like that. There's so many so-called preachers who are merely snake oil salesmen and they're peddling a health and wealth gospel that might find you living in a mansion here and now as you wait to be thrown naked into the pit of hell later. Jesus, the fountain of truth, drops a bomb 
on all of our man-made self-saving mechanisms. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. No hope, a dead end, wealth won't get you there. The ruler's law keeping wouldn't get him or you there. Taking a vow of poverty on the other end of the spectrum won't get you there. There is nothing human beings can do to be saved. But in the midst of this horribly dark and bleak picture, Jesus grants them the hope of possibility. When all hope is lost, Jesus cracks the whole situation open and shines a light. Verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The way of salvation is impossible for any person to navigate because of the obstacles of sin and our worldly desires that we're all so corrupted by. But the grace of God, the work of the Son, the power of the Spirit removes all of those obstacles. Whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, loved or despised, we are not all doomed to be lost after all. Amen? Thank God. If we just acknowledge our inability to save ourselves, if we look at the things that have seduced our hearts and have deceived us into believing that they were so important, and if we cast them aside for the sake of Christ, we will see that God knows no impossibility. He is sovereign. He is strong. He has authority. He has strength. Jeremiah worshiped God this way in Jeremiah 32, 17. He said, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. And listen to this. Nothing is too hard for you. See, faith doesn't figure out how to do something. Faith doesn't unlock the key to how to save yourself. Faith recognizes our utter impotence and it looks to God to do what otherwise could never be done. To remove the impossibility and replace it with hope of possibility. R.C. Sproul liked to say there is no such thing as a bootstrap ethic in the Bible. No one pulls himself up by his own bootstraps apart from the grace of God. Everything we have, we have been given by God. Everything we can do is because God has enabled us to do so. But knowing this, knowing what I just said is true, is not the hard part. Because before you ever heard this message, I bet if I asked you in the foyer, do you believe God is, you can only have what God's given you and you can only do what God enables you to do? I think every one of us would say, sure, absolutely, I believe that. That's not the hard part. Living it out is the hard part. So ask yourselves another set of diagnostic questions. And I pray that the Holy Spirit shines His light so you can't excuse the reality of what's happening and you can look at it and you can finally be free of it. 
Here's some of the questions. What do you look to to make you feel significant? Maybe it's your job, your family, your opinions, your wisdom, your education. What is it that you look to to make you feel significant? In the company of others, what evidence do you give, even if subtly, to prove that you are distinct and that you're important? How much confidence do you really have? How much confidence do you place in the things that are even now passing away? What are you pursuing? What demands your time? What forms your identity? What is the anchor of your soul and your personality? May God grant us the ability to see our true lack of ability. May God help us to see that we don't have in our hands what is inherently valuable. And in knowing that we have no ability and nothing that is inherently valuable, may we know the only true source of life and goodness. Now in the light of all this that Jesus has said, Peter's mind takes him back to when he was building his fishing business. Things were going pretty good. And Jesus one day walked by where he was doing business on the seashore. And Jesus called him and he called his partners and he called his brother to follow him right then and there. And the Bible tells us they dropped their their nets and, and James and John even left their father in the boat and they immediately started following Jesus. And since that time, they had seen amazing things. They'd heard amazing things. They've never lacked for anything that they needed since they were following Jesus. And Peter reminds Jesus of how things had changed for all of them. See, we have left everything and followed you. Now, I think Peter was communicating that he recognized how much he had benefited from knowing Christ. And in spite of all that he had left lying on the seashore and those he left at home, he knew that Christ was the true treasure. And if Jesus called him to lay down everything else that he had, I believe he would have done it. Later on, he will offer to die with Jesus, even if he did so impetuously. But it's clear that he loved Christ and he was willing to be even impoverished for the sake of his glory. And it's that commitment, that that willingness to just lose it all, that made what Jesus said next so absolutely wonderful. He made a hundredfold promise. Now, some of you are probably nervous, and rightly so. I'm not talking about one of those weird things that the shady televangelists say when they say, just send me a hundred bucks and God will give you a hundredfold return. It's not what, that's not what he's saying. Because what Jesus says is true. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, listen closely, there is no one 
who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. Now. We're not talking about the sweet by and by, folks, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and, in the age to come, eternal life. Now, remember the rich young ruler's question, what can I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? Jesus just told him. He told him right there. That the promise of the age to come was eternal life. Now, Jesus' promise focuses on the loss of relations and possessions related to families and homes, and he promises that those losses will be satisfactorily repaid to all who follow him, both here and now and in the age to come. So the question always arises when this passage is, is preached, how does Jesus repay us now? Well, first of all, he repays us with spiritual family. Uh, genuinely following Christ almost always results in the loss of some relationships. It can be, I know several of you here uh, are estranged from people in your family because of your decision to follow Christ. I know others of you have had to leave friends because of your decision to follow Christ. But God's design for the church, the church that sadly so often we might think is just a, 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 a duty we have to perform or an inconvenience we have to endure. The church, God's design for the church is to set the solitary into a home, according to, to Psalm 68. And I know many who would testify, because you've told me this, that your relationship to your spiritual family is much closer than to your blood family. If I can be real honest with you, that's the way it is for me. I'm not super close to my blood family, but I am super close to you guys. I love you guys. But how does he repay the sacrifice of possessions and lands? Well, whenever the people of God are gathered in worship, the individual people of God have a place. They have a home. They have a nation to call their own. No matter how displaced by the world out there, they always are at home within the body of Christ. But however satisfying the spiritual family and this spiritual nation are to us here and now, we must realize that these things are still only a small taste of what we will experience in the next age when Christ's kingdom finds its full expression in eternal life. Furthermore, while we enjoy these blessings in the fellowship of the church, Christ reminds us that the world outside will be increasingly hostile to us as we reject what it holds uh, uh, as valuable as it's, as we reject its idols. But wouldn't you rather experience, if you're going to experience persecution, wouldn't you rather experience it in the company of a family of fellow believers than experience it all alone? Wouldn't you rather suffer temporarily for Christ knowing that you are destined for eternal life? It's worth it. It's a worthy trade. Persecution is now for the glory of Christ later. Perfect trade. Better better than, than you know we could ever imagine. 
The Bible teaches us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And a great day is rapidly approaching when Christ will cleanse what is rightfully his, the earth and everything in it, from every philosophy, every action, every person that is that currently defiles it. And on that day, think about that day. On that day, will you be fined, will you be found rather clinging to what is to be burned? Or will you be found clinging by faith to Christ and Christ alone? Jesus finishes by saying, but many who are first will be last. And the last first. Right now, we live in a world that has its own version of the golden rule. You've heard it. He who has the gold makes the rules. But the clock is ticking on that world system. Soon all who have built sandcastles out of what the world values will be stripped completely bare. They will be forgotten, they will be judged, and they will be condemned, and they will be the last of all. In Jesus' parable of the rich man, he says, But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But those who have laid down everything for Christ will find that they have lost nothing now. I said they've lost nothing now and certainly have lost nothing in the future. Instead of losses, they have only invested wisely. And the promise is that they will be the first of all. Guaranteed both a present and a future return. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would search our hearts. You told us that where our treasure is, there our heart would be also. And we ask that you would just help us to know and not deny or excuse where our treasure really is this morning. We pray that you would just help us to see the passing, fleeting, corrupting nature of all that we cling to in this life and ask that you would help us, Lord, to cling to you more and more, to treasure you, God, to anticipate heavenly treasure. And as we said last week, we're not talking about material things of streets of gold and pearly gates, Lord. We are asking that we would see that you are the treasure, God. And help us to cling to you with a relentless grip by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated for a moment. In just a moment, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we always do. 
But before we do that, I want to just take a moment to let you know of some changes that will be coming to Northridge and how we celebrate and partake of the Lord's Supper. Over the last few months, we have really um, taken the time to study the Lord's Supper communion in depth. That's something that's been very much on our hearts and minds that's been very important to us because we believe that communion or the Lord's Supper is to be a vital, central part of corporate worship when the body of Christ comes together. Um, that's something that we're, we, we believe very strongly about. And because of that, we want to celebrate it in a way that uh, that is as biblically faithful as possible. And so one of the changes we're making, you may have already read that in your bulletin this morning, if, if you actually read your bulletin. But one of the changes that we're making is beginning in two weeks on November 13th, we are going to start using not just grape juice, but also wine in our celebration of communion. Now, I would ask that as some of your heart rates start to go up, um, if you would just hear me out for a few minutes, because we know that this is a controversial issue or a very heavy issue for some of the, for some of you, we wanted to take just a moment and explain to you why we're doing this and what this is going to look like going forward. And the absolute primary reason, the number one reason that we are doing this is because we are absolutely convinced that it is faithful to the biblical model. Wine has been used as a part of the Lord's Supper for almost the entirety of church history. And it wasn't until around the 1800s where certain churches began to say, you know what, we need to stop doing this. And the reason for that had nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. But it was purely cultural reasons where the culture started to say that alcohol in any form whatsoever, in any quantity, is sinful, period. And so as the church... It's important for us to say not not what does the culture say and culture believe, but what does the Bible teach? What does Scripture say about this? And I want to take just a moment um, to help you understand this biblically when it comes to the consumption of alcohol in any form. Uh, so Genesis twenty seven twenty eight. When Isaac blesses Jacob, part of his blessing includes that he would receive plenty of grain and wine. Now, certainly, if wine was something inherently sinful, that would have been included in a curse and not a blessing. In Exodus chapter 12, wine is given as the means to celebrate the Passover meal. In Exodus 29:40, God commands wine to be part of the offering brought to him as a consecration for the priests. Now, certainly we must say that God would never command that something sinful be brought to him as an offering. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. When we look at the New Testament, we see very clearly that Jesus drank wine. We see in John chapter 2, the very first miracle of Jesus at the wedding in Cana was turning water into wine. Not just any wine, but the best of wine. 
We see Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 that he should drink wine as a part of his medical issues. We see Jesus in Matthew 26, 29, telling the disciples that he will drink wine with them again in his Father's kingdom. And, and let me assure you, I could go on for a very long time. There, there is scripture after scripture that speaks to this. But this is the point, that there are absolutely no biblical grounds for us to assert that using wine in communion is sinful or in any way dishonoring to the Lord. In fact, the scripture tells us repeatedly that wine is a good gift from God. Now, certainly, the Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin, right? We have to be absolutely clear on that. But any time we see a good gift from God abused, the answer is not just to throw it out completely, right? Biblical sexuality is a good gift from God that is horribly, horribly abused in our culture today. I'm sure we can all agree on that. But the answer is not to stand as the church and command celibacy for every Christian. But what we are to do is to call people to repentance and call them to practice sexuality in a biblical manner, which is in the covenant of marriage exclusively between one husband and one wife. The answer is not to say, well, let's just throw it out because it's abused. And it's the same with this issue. Wine is a good gift from God that we're not commanded to throw out simply because it is abused by some. Now, I know there are questions, there are concerns. Let me, let me address probably the most common question and concern that I get uh, any time this comes up, and that is the issue of alcoholism and alcoholics. Are we not, as the church, enabling alcoholism and alcoholics if we are using wine in communion and my simple answer my simple response to that question and concern would be that if alcoholism is a problem today which i think we can all agree it is it was equally a problem in the first century during the time of jesus It was equally a problem during the time of the Apostle Paul. And yet Jesus, in his wisdom and sovereignty, used wine when he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the Corinthian church, uh, the abuse of wine was a big problem, right? You guys are familiar with that. In fact, they were abusing it during the Lord's Supper itself. That's a big problem. But, but I want you to notice that Paul never says, hey guys, this is get, becoming a really big problem. Y'all need to get rid of the wine and start using grape juice. Paul never says that. Instead, Paul calls them to repentance. Paul calls them to maturity. Paul calls them to use wine in the way that God intended it to be used in the sacrament. 
And so if, if we say in any way that the use of wine in the sacrament is wrong or sinful or insensitive, then we are essentially charging Jesus himself of being wrong, sinful, and insensitive. And that we cannot under any circumstance do. We also must be absolutely clear that alcoholism, drunkenness in the scripture, is not viewed as a disease. It's not viewed as something that's just a result of your upbringing or things that happen to you in your life. But alcoholism and drunkenness are clearly viewed as sinful in the eyes of the Lord. And instead of changing the Lord's Supper to accommodate sin, we need to be faithful as the church to call the sinner to repentance and to a deeper maturity in Christ, just as Paul did to the Corinthian church. Now, as I said, please hear me out. Having said all of that, we know and we understand that this issue um, is very serious, very heavy for some of you. For some of you, it is, is it, it has affected your life in a drastic way. Some of you have experienced great tragedy and sorrow in your lives because of alcoholism and the abuse of alcohol. And I want you to know that our our hearts are with you and that we love you and that we are for you in every way. And because of that, we are going to also continue to use grape juice in the service because we understand that for some of you it would be a violation of your conscience to participate in the use of wine during communion. We want to be sensitive to that and we want to be an encouragement to you and never in any way cause you or force you to have to act in a way that's contrary to your conscience. And so beginning in two weeks, uh, when you come through the line, we'll be serving both wine and communion. It will be clearly labeled so that you know which one you will be partaking of. If you have children, our, our teaching as a church is that children should participate in the Lord's Supper when they have made a clear profession of faith in Christ with an understanding of the gospel, and they have followed in obedience to the Lord in baptism, then we want our children participating in the supper. If you have children that will be participating, then we leave that decision to you as parents, um, which you would want your kids partaking in, whether that be the wine or the juice. That is your decision as a family. But this is this is absolutely critical. Let me finish with this is that we can in no way allow this issue to be divisive in the body of Christ in any way whatsoever. If you choose to partake of the wine, there is absolutely no room for you to look down on those who choose differently. And if you choose to partake in the juice, there is absolutely no room for you to look down on those who choose to partake differently. This is an opportunity for us as the church to demonstrate love and charity and unity to each other as the body of Christ. Because ultimately, what is absolutely most important is not whether you pick up a little cup of juice or wine when you come through the line. But that when you come to the Lord's table, 
that we participate in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Amen? Now let me encourage you, because I know there are probably more questions and more concerns, and I encourage you not to just leave angry and upset and flustered today, but please, if you have any question, any concern whatsoever, please come and talk to us. Come talk to Pastor Mark. Come talk to myself. And we would love to answer your questions and to speak to any concerns that you might have. So, having said all that, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. And I'm going to ask our communion helpers um, if they would um, come forward to help us serve. As we say every week, if you are a believer, if you have placed your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Christ as both Lord and Savior, then we invite you to come this morning and participate. If you are not a believer, if you have not trusted Christ for your salvation, then when you come to the table as an unbeliever, you actually make a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ. The Bible says that you drink and eat condemnation on yourself. And so we ask you, if you are not a believer, that you not come forward and partake. Not because we want to exclude you anyway, but our prayer is that you would clearly hear and see the gospel this morning, that you would trust in Christ fully and completely for your salvation. And we would love to talk to you and walk you through that if that's where you're at this morning. But for those of you that have put your trust in Christ, invite you to come. Um, partake of the elements, take them back to your seat, and in a moment we will take those together. The words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. If you put your hands in a receiving position, let me read a benediction for you, over you from Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.